Um, I'm here with Calder Hannon, who is a uh, YouTuber and a PhD student at Columbia, who's studying music theory uh, with an emphasis on extreme and progressive metal. Um, his project is Florid uh, Ecstasis, and I'm excited to sort of dive into music theory and metal and a bunch of stuff like that. Um, Calder, I start these conversations asking about people's coffee habits. Can you tell me if you drink coffee um, or if there's a, another beverage that you hold sacred in your life? Uh, I, I don't drink coffee. I'm, I'm an anomaly. Um, yeah, I, uh, I'm, I'm a fan of, of good old H2O, although I don't say no to a PBR. Uh, Interesting. Every now and again. Yeah, I have the trashiest beer taste and uh, I, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mostly drink water. I'm boring like that. Interesting. You're like the second guest altogether who said that of, you know, 40 or so. Oh, uh, really? <laughs> very interesting. Okay. Um, do you, I mean, are you into water or do you just drink it because you have to? <laughs> I, I would say I'm, I'm maybe more enthusiastic about water than, uh, than the average person. Um, yeah, I, uh, I, my, like other part of my, my life, I'm a, um, I compete in weightlifting and I, I'm a coach at a gym. That's kind of my side gig. So, um, maybe that has something to do with it. Um, but yeah, I, uh, sparkling water or regular water. No, I, I don't, I don't like spicy water. I <laughs> just, just regular water, <laughs> probably the, um, the most unsatisfying answer, uh, could possibly give, but it's the truth. And I've sworn to tell nothing but the truth. Well, when I came across your YouTube channel, you know, I felt like an immediate kinship and like somebody else who who gets uh, the sort of music theoretical landscape. And so I, I don't understand your water preferences. I don't understand your lack <laughs> of coffee, but um, now I know. Um, okay, so you're you're at Columbia. You're doing music theory, and um, you know, I I was super jealous when I realized that you were doing this because I just straight up didn't know that you could do that. Um, when I was in school, I you know, was under the impression you could do classical music or maybe do some jazz. When did you realize that you could do metal and an academic? Uh, uh, well, it's, um, yeah, so I, I didn't even realize that you could do anything with music in an academic realm until uh, after I finished my undergrad. Um, I was, I kind of got through the end of my, my undergrad. I, I wrote a, a, an undergrad thesis uh, about this stuff. Um, and then I didn't really have anything lined up. I hung around in, um, in Charlottesville for another year. I was working at a restaurant um, and I had, I went to have lunch with my, one of my advisors, one of my professors. And he's like, well, you should think about grad school. Um, and I was like, you can go to grad school for music theory. Um, because like the, the place I went to, uh, I, I went to the University of Virginia for undergrad and the grad program there was only in pretty much in composition. Um, and I was like, I know I'm not like really trying to be a composer, I don't think. Um, and I'm not, I'm certainly not going into a performance program. Um, so yeah, it was kind of eye-opening to, to know that I could go into a music theory program. And yeah, there's, I mean, it's not uh, super common, but there, there are certainly several people um, who have kind of blaze this trail doing the metal stuff um and like uh yeah so there are even people 
um, a few people ahead of me who were admitted to kind of high, higher profile grad programs um, based on their, their interest in metal. So Eric Smielik, who came out of McGill, um, and Olivia Lucas, who went to Harvard, uh, and Stephen Hudson, who was at uh, Northwestern. Um, so I'm kind of just like following in their, their footsteps. Um, and I should say there's certainly, there's always room for more, more of us. And it's, if you, if it's still something you're interested in, um, I think it's, you'll find that programs are a lot more receptive to, to metal stuff than, than most people think. Interesting. Okay. Well, maybe I'll be part of this group one day. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm curious. So, uh, in terms of like music theory, um, what, how would you map out the main sort of domains right now? Like wh uh, whether it's, you know, areas of interest for you or just like how you see the sort of music theory world right now? Um, that's a good question. I should also, I, sorry, I forgot about the Florida people, Jose Garza, uh, Gregory McCandless, just in case, you know, on the off chance, anybody's listening, I'm sure I'm forgetting <laughs> a bunch more people, but there's, there's, you know, it's, it was kind of a lot of this stuff, um, or a lot more of this stuff than people assume. Um, so your question is like about the, the different kind of areas of, of music theory, mm -hmm. um, stuff in my own research, uh, my own interests and in research. Um, I think the, I don't know, there's, there's so, so much stuff. I think there was a, a time when there was this stereotype that was maybe well-deserved, um, that music theory, if you're doing academic music theory, you're either doing Schenker, so doing you know, tonal music, doing these reductions and making these graphs, or you're doing set theory. So you're doing atonal music. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I think that's, um, that's not, not true anymore. Those, those areas kind of still have a huge hold on uh, like the conversation. And like, if you go to the um, annual, any of the big annual music theory conferences, you'll generally find plenty of sessions where people are, are working on that stuff and sharing their, their research. Um, but the areas, I mean, and then I guess what I'm saying is that in uh, the, the world now, there's like, it's completely fragmented. It's kind of like asking like, what, what are the main areas of metal right mm -hmm. now? There's, um, there's, there's not really, uh, it's, it's hard to tell a narrative where everything kind of hangs together. For sure. Um, but the areas that I'm kind of interested in are, um, obviously this, this rhythmic stuff. Uh, so it's particularly looking at the rhythm from a, like an embodied perspective. So looking at, um, what movement and, um, embodied cognition have to do with, uh, how we might analyze rhythms. Um, and um, yeah, so, so that's kind of, the, there's, I mean, there's a, a long-ish history of rhythmic um, analysis, which has always been kind of overshadowed by the harmony stuff, mm -hmm. um, but it's been there. Uh, but kind of the exciting thing that's been happening um, recently is uh, kind of, bring this into conversation with, with how people actually move to music instead of thinking of stuff as just like abstract grids mm -hmm. uh, and, um, you know, isolated time points and durations and stuff, thinking about how, think about how, how rhythm feels, how, um, yeah, how 
how your, your body can kind of know things about rhythm that your brain doesn't really know, um, how you can, uh, you know, outsource aspects of rhythm to like different parts of your body. Um, and like there, there's one of the people who wrote his dissertation at Columbia, um, a few years ago, he had a, he has a really cool dissertation. Galen DeGraff is his name. Um, but he, he has a really cool dissertation about, uh, like performing polymeters. Um, and like this idea that there's a lot of literature about the brain that's kind of saying like, well, you, you can't pay attention to, to two different rhythms at the same time. Mm -hmm. Um, and his argument is kind of like, well, you don't have to pay attention to it. Like if your foot can do one thing and your hand can do another thing, like that clearly happens all the time for drummers and, uh, organists and, and other multi-limbed musicians. Um, so like that counts as, as some sort of cognition. Um, so yeah, I'd say that's kind of the main area I'm going in, um, for the dissertation. Although I have a bad habit of trying to do everything. So like on the YouTube channel, I, I just do like a kind of random, I do some like really traditional harmony stuff. I do some kind of old fashioned rhythm stuff. I try to do some kind of more out there, like edges of music theory, uh, stuff like where the boundary between music theory and I don't know, music criticism or, or cultural, uh, writing about music. Um, I, I've done a lot about form. Um, so like looking at long, long-term form, uh, in some of these prog bands. Um, yeah. So kind of, Maybe that's a enough of an answer for, for, for sure. Um, it, it seems like maybe like microtonal stuff is becoming a big thing. Like it might pass like, you know, four or five guests have been microtonal people. And like, that's never clicked for me because I'm just like, I, I already bought a guitar and I don't want to buy another. But um, yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, I guess when I was in school, was, there was definitely like a focus on harmony. And I feel like everybody glorified melody, but they couldn't really put any theory or analysis to it. Um, but yeah, it's also interesting that you say Shankarian or set theory, are you hip to like this Neo Raymanian or whatever? Yeah. 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 So that's the other, um, that's another, another big area. I've done a little bit with that. Um, I think it's cool. Uh, yeah, this, the, um, like looking at, I, I think it's cool because it, one of the things that's a little annoying about Schenker, uh, is how hierarchical it is and how it's like the whole theory is based on there's like one chord that matters the one chord the tonic mm -hmm. uh, and everything else is subservient to it um which i think in a lot of music starting with like 19th century uh mid to late romantic stuff it kind of stops making uh, a whole lot of sense so it's and and there's a ton of metal stuff where it's uh it's interesting. Yeah. So I, I talked about that a little bit in the, um, the Fantafaxis video I did, uh, in the fall. Um, yeah, I wouldn't say I'm an expert, but it's, um, I like that too. Yeah. So I mean, like there's that, there's also like jazz harmony has kind of become a big, um, thing. I know you, you said you, you, you were a studio jazz. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. 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 I, I, I play jazz guitar for a little bit. I'm not, very good but I, I took lessons for um a while so like that's another kind of cool like pragmatic way of thinking about harmony i think um 
Yeah. Um, I, I spoke to John Link, who, you know, is like a, an Elliot Carter, I guess, like a affiliate. And um, I, I was curious, like talking to him, he like I wanted to see if he could attribute any sort of like particular pitch class sets to something that would like fit with death metal. And um, I, he was just uncomfortable with the idea of death metal. Like he, he doesn't know it or listen to it. But um, I'm curious if your mind, just to like sort of talk a little bit of geeky shop, if your mind uh, goes anywhere with like what sort of interval vectors or like pitch class sets would vibe with that versus say black metal or like how do you think about that relating to genres um that's a good question i think uh the um like 016 pitch class set that's like you get that chord like voiced that so it would be like you know c c sharp f sharp um so you have it has both a minor second and a tritone in it kind of like the maximally dissonant uh tricord um you hear that a lot in uh like dissonant death metal and in math core um mm -hmm. to like this like the dillinger escape plan chord like at the start of prancer um and uh you yeah i i, I think i brought it up a little bit in like my gorguts video and the um ingurgitating oblivion video um as far as black metal i don't know it's uh it's hard to say. I like a lot of black metal is pretty triadic, yeah. um, but a lot of it's not. Like I've been the last couple of days, I've been listening to a lot of Kralis, the, the the new album, and then going back and listening to a lot of the older stuff. Um, which like that's all over the place. There's like the earlier stuff was pretty triadic. There's a lot of stuff that's kind of like very uh, fourth C and fifth C. Uh, these kind of like open intervals um in the in the middle there's there's plenty of stuff that's just like really angular more chromatic um so I, yeah i don't know so much about black metal but, that's uh, my sense as well like sort of triadic with like a lot of parallel stuff yeah um, yeah absolutely um it, do you think about like i mean like I guess like coming from some sort of you know counterpoint background or whatever you hear about like how you know everything parallel is so bad but like then you know in our world it's like it's, it's kind of expected um do you have any thoughts on like parallelism <laughs> yeah um yeah one of the people actually it was galen de Graff. i ta'd for him last year i think it was him but he whenever when he was teaching so we we're teaching theory two or theory three um and he was just like very clear every time he brought it up it's like parallel intervals are bad if you want to make the voices sound independent um and in like for voice writing often the goal is to make the voices sound independent so you can show off that there are four voices um doing kind of uh independent things uh whereas in uh metal it's often that's not really how like it, stuff isn't in kind of like a four voice texture mm -hmm. um it's uh it's more about reinforcing these root motions um and uh using these different chord colors on top of it to 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 flesh stuff out make it sound a certain way um yeah like, i mean like i think about like one of the first guitar riffs I learned, the Raining Blood riff, where 
it comes first and then you play a string up. So it's just a, it's a parallel perfect fourth. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that's, that's super metal. It's like, it, it's not about adding a second voice necessarily. It's about kind of like making this one riff, this one line sound more evil. Yeah, the whole evilness thing is interesting, and um, I'm not sure if you know Charlie Looker from uh, Extra Life. Yeah, yeah. Um, he has I mean, a whole thing, a, but uh, he has like a video where he talks about basically like coming to terms with evil, and um, I think when you try to represent evilness in intervals, it's kind of funny. Um, so yeah. I'm, like you know, to me, a perfect fourth, like I don't see what's so evil about it. Uh, but then like I feel like people are trying to poke holes in the whole tritone being evil thing now, like. Um, yeah adam neely did that video about how that's like kind of a myth do you have any yeah. uh, take on that yeah it's all it's all contextual it's all i mean i think it, like it's cool that he did that like historical thing um but there is a certain sense in which it's been a myth so long that it's like it's become part of the the culture mm-hmm. um yeah like i'm i'm not one to i'm definitely not someone to say that there's some sort of like intrinsic property of, of an interval that'll make it sound a certain way. It's all, mm-hmm. it's all context. And that context is both like the music that's around it and like what you know about the band, how they dress, what their album cover looks like. Right. It's all going to shape how you, uh, how you hear something. Um, so yeah, I think the, like you can have, you can make any interval sound evil or not evil. Um, yeah, I'm personally, I'm kind of a fan. I've been messing around in my own stuff a lot with uh, doing the like major thirds world. So mm-hmm. doing major thirds and minor sixths. Um, I think those those have a pretty, uh, to the extent that they kind of hint at like an augmented chord sound. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it has a, a cool, cool sound. But yeah, there there's lots of stuff. Obviously, like the Dillinger escape plan, they there's an interview I got a lot of mileage out of uh, where he's like talking about how they have some lines where they harmonize it with at a minor second. So they're just playing the same thing a fret apart. Um, and it has this like really buzzy kind of dissonant sound. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Be an interesting project doing like a, <laughs> a survey of like parallel intervals in metal. I bet you could find pretty good examples for most of them. Like evil empiricism. Uh- yeah. Imagining the title of the essay. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, have you done a, a video on Portal? I mean, I don't no, think I've I seen haven't. Um, yeah, I, I feel like they've made good use of that minor six evilness, and like I don't know how they do it, but it their sound is so terrifying, and like yeah, I'm not one to attribute terrifyingness to intervals, but yeah, yeah. They're also their stuff is just like so. I don't know. I've always like I I, I like their music. Um, I, they're one of those bands that I've kind of been. Uh, I don't know, maybe too lazy or too too daunted to try to transcribe, just because it's like it's so hard to hear. Yeah, <laughs> and that's absolutely. kind of the thing. It's like it's so murky, it's so claustrophobic, just like sound wise, hard to even tell what what the guitar is doing. Um, mm-hmm. so I like I, I'm sure I could figure it out if I spent some time on it, but add it to my my endless <laughs> list for sure um in terms of like your reading and stuff um i'm curious how you curate that type of thing and i'm assuming like i feel like maybe i'm willfully not seeing the points of access to this type of material but like i assume that being an institution you have access to like you know a bunch of stuff like at the library or whatever but um 
how do you curate your reading and how do you how would you curate it if you didn't have like an institution to you know uh, uh yeah that's a great question it's such a shame this whole system of uh like institutional access i should say something that i think most academics would say um which is if there's something you want to read like and you don't have access to it just send me a link i'll download it and send it to you because i i get this stuff on on the library and the authors of it don't get any money from it if you pay for it or whatever it's it's mm. so i mean unless it's like a, a, a published book but like a lot of this stuff happens in articles um in journals um and there's no reason to be paying for those really um so uh yeah so there is it's it's a weird world where um there's so much stuff that gets written and it's so i don't want to say like badly publicized but um it's like unless you know the person personally and you like see them post about it uh you're probably not going to hear about something or unless you like happen to be flipping through the journal or uh it's on some sort of list that you're watching mm -hmm. um so yeah there, there's a ton of stuff that comes out and like i stuff that i i should have read and just like nobody knew about people have worked and that, that's the problem with this is like you have so many people doing this work and it's uh pretty common that they just like never find each other um and they would actually have a lot to say to each other um so as far as like curating what i'm reading figuring out what i'm reading um a lot of I know, a lot of like academic work is just like building bibliographies um and like so one of my exams for for uh for phd camp um as i call it is was putting together we had like four topics and we had to come up with a bibliography of like 20 or 30 sources for each um and then read them all and do answer essay questions about them um so that's like that was one huge source of things that was one summer i just kind of spent reading stuff um yeah most of it's word of mouth and like once you kind of get plugged into something especially if you find something recent that's been published you look through that paper's bibliography and you can normally kind of get plugged into this mm -hmm. uh, network of things that people um people are reading but yeah something i've been meaning to do is like uh i mean i get this question a lot or some version of this question a lot in comments and, and stuff is like what book should i read how what should i uh be looking at um and uh the answer i normally have is like it's there i've learned a lot more about this specific stuff from articles than books because most of these people are young enough that they haven't published full books about it mm -hmm. um about the metal stuff at least i mean there's plenty of interesting other stuff um but yeah something I've, I've been meaning to do is either a video about it or uh or something or maybe like a, a bibliography page um just like with a list of stuff to read for people who are looking to research this this stuff um yeah another source like when i first uh sent in that that one article uh to try to get it published i um 
like got reviewer comments and they said, you say that there hasn't been a lot of writing about metal, but you're actually wrong. There's been a ton. So that was, <laughs> that was useful to like get a list of a bunch of things to, to have to read for yeah. that. Um, yeah. And the other way of answering the question is to say like the, what I read right now is way too little and it's very pragmatic. It's like, what is this thing I'm working on at this exact moment? And what do I have to read for, for that to be able to cite um, and kind of help my, my ideas along? So uh, yeah, I don't, I don't read nearly as much as I, I should, but I feel like everyone feels like that. <laughs> for sure, yeah. Um, let's see here. Um, I'm curious if you feel like there are any sort of like particularly ripe areas of research uh, in theory right now, like if, if you were to like all of a sudden have like a bunch of people doing what you're doing and you were like gonna direct them to different areas, where would you point them? That's a great question. Um, I don't know, I, like I feel like it would be great to have uh, more transcription of like this really complicated stuff that isn't, um, that hasn't been transcribed. Um, like obviously there's a, there's a huge, amount of like unbelievable amount of this stuff that has been transcribed like if you go on ultimate guitar and just look at like all the gorgut songs that are on there that people have painstakingly sat at home and figured out mm -hmm. uh it's like it's really amazing um and the fact that you can get all this stuff for uh for free um or for pretty cheap mm -hmm. um with the getting guitar pro or subscribing to ultimate guitars thing um so uh but yeah there's still there's tons of bands like the the kind of slightly less famous bands where i feel like there's um just like having transcriptions of all that stuff would would lead to a lot of really interesting stuff um and the other thing that i'm i'm going to be doing a little bit for my dissertation but i'd be really excited to see more about is like these kind of um and like collecting documents of people's compositions um like or rehearsal documents like you know videos of, of bands rehearsing or uh you know the the scratch files they share mm -hmm. with each other um or the things they write down to figure out how to learn a song um or uh the you know the stuff they say to each other to try to explain like how to play something mm -hmm. um which like that's i think that's like a huge black hole uh or or black box i guess right now um in in this scholarship is like the really like nitty-gritty because like being in a band you know like there's all sorts of stuff that goes on like i when i've the for the little bit when my metal band was uh an actual multi-person band um you know i'd like having to explain like what what's happening here uh in in this riff and how to think about this rhythm and whatever and i feel like there's a whole lot of like really interesting knowledge uh there that's not in like the language of official music theory but it right. it has it kind of gets at different important things that are overlooked when you just look at the finished product um so i guess that's another thing those are kind of like 
maybe more like ethnographic, mm-hmm. uh, ethnomusicological, ethnomusicological things to do. Um, as far as music theory of metal, uh, I don't know. There's there hasn't actually been a ton about harmony. Um, there's there's been a fair amount about rhythm, um, and there's been some really good stuff about form recently. Uh, but um, yeah, there's still not a whole lot about harmony, which I don't think I'm going to be the person to do that. But mm-hmm. that's that's another another area where it could be interesting. Do you feel like um like I feel like a lot of the music theory that seems to be going on is like basically analysis? And I'm curious, um, is your goal with this type of stuff to like show why something is good or just show what somebody's doing? Because like, you know, showing why what somebody's doing might not show why it's good necessarily, like why there's value to it. But um, I don't know, like I, I feel like some of this is trying to explain why something works, you know? Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. I think um there's it's a it's a an interesting question and a really complicated question um because i'm gonna say no i'm never trying to like prove that something is good that's not something Mm -hmm. you can prove right uh, because how good something is is it's a relation between you listening to something and the sound it's not like something that just exists in the sound itself um but at the same time, I feel like it's kind of implicit in everything I do. Like if I'm writing about something, it's probably something I, I like, or at least something I like enough to want to spend the time to write about it um, or talk about it, make a video about it, whatever, learn to play it. Um, so it's like, there is still, that's still like part of it. Um, but I think it, it is kind of like a, a common, um, Yeah, I think a, a way that one of my advisors put it, um, the same one who told me about how grad school exists, um, was he said, music theory is a way of not taking things for granted. Um, so like listening to like what's actually happening, because it's really easy to listen to something and just like not get any of it, not pay attention to it, not like uh, care about what's, what's changing, what's going on. So it's kind of like, I I think of it as like a a way of, of being, getting closer to, uh, to the music. Um, and it is like a, a, a way of caring about the music and, uh, trying to maybe trying to show other people why you like it or what you like about it, or, at least just like finding a way to spend more time with music you like um mm-hmm. yeah i hope that answers yeah, it, so. a little bit. it was a an ill-formed question <laughs> to start with but um yeah no it, it's i mean like i said it's a really really good question that i ask myself very often <laughs> mm-hmm. um i guess it's kind of like those how things work book books where it's you know like trying to explain how, how something works like the mechanics of it looking under the hood and yeah. all that yeah um, yeah. Uh, so something I've been talking to a few people about in the metal world is like this idea of technicality and like, you know, like there's like tech death, there's you know, technical, brutal death metal. And um, at a certain point, like, I feel like this word doesn't help anymore because like 
are you saying that it's complicated or are you saying that it's like difficult to play um and so like i don't know it seems like at one point maybe technical meant like oh it's very flashy and impressive but then it became like like you're looking at stuff where it's like the car bomb stuff it's like that that's not too difficult in the sense of like you have to play really fast it's like it's very conceptually difficult and yeah. you know a lot of like uh coordination and stuff so like what what's your relation with the word technical and uh do you feel like there'd be a better word for it yeah that's, that's another really good question um and it's actually something i uh there i have an article another article coming out in march um where i get into this a little bit um and what i yeah, so you're absolutely right that it's it's kind of this, like so many words about music, if you look at it a little bit closely, it starts to look really weird. Um, but we're just like so used to using it and um, it's uh, you're not used to maybe looking uh, critically at, at these sorts of words. Um, but I think, yeah, I mean, like it's it's there's something like um, I don't know, there, there's a few directions. Like you said, there's there's the technique aspect. Um, so like technical as in requiring really advanced technique, um, which I think of, you know, like Necrophagist or uh, I guess Archspire or, or these other bands that it's like, it's, it's kind of like an athletic achievement to be able to play this stuff because it's so fast. It makes your hand do all these, these weird things. Then there's also technical in the, sense like you said like conceptual difficulty which adam neely has has the video kind of about this um it's about virtuosity or it's about like it's called like the hardest music to play or something but it, he like uh, makes ben johnson sense. thing or yeah yeah that's the one he he decides is the hardest music to play <laughs> the, the most difficult music in the world um but yeah so the, like conceptual stuff so you know car bomb stuff uh, where it's hard to play because you have to think of time in a really different way, or you have to develop the sensitivity to um, time that's really different. I also think of technical as like technical in the sense of like uh, scientific or like, um, yeah, maybe, maybe that's the, the word, like, you know, clinical, like, so there's something kind of like very, sterile which normally you you say to mean it's as like a bad thing you say like oh that's bad music it's sterile as opposed to you know organic emotional music but i think there's a the aesthetic value in either um people like both uh and the same person can like both at different times um so i think there's an aspect of that too where it's like it's very um on the it's very on the grid it's very like chopped up and assembled in these kind of uh, labyrinthine ways. Um, yeah. And then the other, the idea that I, I this article uh, is about is this idea of structural density, um, which uh, is basically, it's like how, how easy it is to wrap your head around something. So like, there's, this is about, the, the, the article is about um, the anomalous album Omnivalent. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Um, it's uh, kind of like this, this underground tech death album from uh, 2007, 2005, somewhere in there. Um, 
but this uh it's just like it's like cryptopsy and ion dissonance and gorguts on speed and all smashed together um and i like there there are a few bands who are kind of in this this zone um but it's just like stuff happens so quickly and they don't repeat anything and it's just like such a, a blur um that it's it's kind of it's really hard to wrap your head around whereas like if you have something that is um very uh like you know repetitive riffs there's there's stuff happening in a predictable way it's it's a different thing even if it's the same uh you know tempo same stuff same same like difficulty to play uh or whatever um so yeah that's that's another aspect of this that i think is um wrapped up in this this technical death metal stuff um yeah that makes sense like yeah in terms of form like how how complex is the story that you're telling in some ways i guess um yeah yeah how much how much information are you getting per second like are you getting the same riff over and over and it's really fast or are you getting a million new riffs uh and and you can't like settle on any of them roughly yeah and it's funny with that type of arms race it's like at a certain point is there diminishing returns and at what point at what point is there diminishing returns because like you know uh like a band like incentive rack uh you know like when i realized that it was improvised i was kind of like oh fuck like i i love it but i like uh and uh, you know i love all those guys but like i feel like uh i lost something from it like realizing that so much <laughs> of it was improvised yeah yeah and so um i don't know i guess like knowing that there's that much coordination affects the aesthetic somehow but um yeah 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 there's something like it's it's fun i i feel like there's a lot of metal fans uh at least i i did you kind of get into it partly in the early days because you like uh you like seeing guitar heroes do really flashy things right like um like i i loved the the dragon force stuff when they were really big and um just like the, the idea of like people doing something that is really hard to do and it's impressive uh and um no one else can do maybe uh the same way you know you like watch the olympics or or whatever mm -hmm. uh, to like see the the limits of human achievement um so yeah i think there there is this this idea that just like virtuosity is is fun for its own sake uh to to watch um you, you said you're a lifting coach right yeah has that influenced how you think about this type of stuff at all because i mean like i feel like to get that type of performance you have to have that mindset you know yeah um maybe it's funny i don't like i haven't i've never been as like rigorous with my guitar playing as uh as i am with with the lifting stuff mm -hmm. um which is uh maybe a shame um but like i don't know i i don't know if there's there's really any any crossover there there probably is i i think maybe my my fascination with movement uh in music and in in lifting is kind of uh it crosses over but um yeah other than that, i'm not sure uh so i know that you're interested a lot in uh transcription and I, when i was in school like i feel like everybody was like you need to transcribe but if you use like a slowdown tool 
like if you do any of that if you like don't learn to sing at first like and the the jazz people have all these conservative rules but i imagine in metal it's kind of like yeah i'm gonna slow it down and like yeah. quantize it and see um yeah. is there a tool set that you like a toolkit that you use uh, of any software that you'd point people towards yeah yeah i use um i think it's a the, the jazz people use it too is transcribe okay. is the software with the exclamation point um yeah i use that mostly um and then i yeah i, I use dorico for my notation stuff um because i found it's a little more flexible for the putting in the crazy metal rhythmic stuff um and i, I just like the workflow a little more but yeah but i'm absolutely i'm for the metal stuff because the problem with transcribing metal stuff is normally not uh for me it's not so much like melody or pitch it's like it's even hearing what the notes are like yeah. that makes sense. it's like it's totally. timbral it's separating these really muddy guitars from uh from the drums and and being able to hear like especially with the really down-tuned like uh chugging stuff and the um stuff when there's like it's being masked by the vocals and the um the cymbals and everything is as loud as possible um yeah so i i do uh transcribe which has like i, I listen to a lot of stuff slow um and i uh do i filter stuff a lot so like being able to hear the bass i i move everything up an octave um i put eq on it sometimes to try and like piece out little little bits of it um yeah i'm like i i've i i'm always trying to work on my my ear ear training and doing the like singing stuff but with metal so often too the metal stuff is not singable right um like you know it's these huge intervals it's it's really angular uh so <laughs> it's it's a little different than transcribing uh guitar solos or i mean jazz solos of, of any type which i've done a, a little bit of that and I, I had to do for for jazz stuff um but uh and for that yeah like i i took a, a class on jazz transcription here um in my first semester at columbia and we had the same it was like every week there was a different thing and one of them was like we had to learn to sing the whole solo first before we wrote anything down or tried it on our instrument and we had to like sing it go into the room he gave us the first note we had to sing the whole solo and then we would go back and write it down uh because that was my worst nightmare i'm horrible at singing um but yeah which I think all that stuff is useful. I think it's really useful if you're improvising in a tonal setting in jazz, like, yeah, you need to get that stuff into your, so deep into your brain that it, it's, you know, it's not just like your fingers doing it. It's, uh, you can actually really hear it, but yeah, for transcribing the metal stuff, especially since I, I, a lot of times when I'm transcribing stuff, I don't actually learn to play it. Um, that would just slow me down a lot. Uh, cause it's like really hard to play. Um, so I'm just like trying to get the notes down and move on. And then later I go back and learn to play it. Gotcha. Um, yeah, I assume that for what you're doing, like, like, I feel like, you know, these days, like whenever I'm like listening to something, I'm like, well, I figure out how to turn this into content. Like I write a review of it or whatever. Like, 
like if nothing else to just like keep me more deeply engaged with it um so i'm curious you know since you're probably doing that more so um how do you approach listening like uh both in terms of like finding what to listen to and like how much like how focused are you when you listen to it um what sort of process is that like uh yeah that's a good question i think for me i feel a little bit like i have at least right now i have like a huge backlog of stuff that i'm uh it's gonna take because it like it takes so much more time to like i i feel like ideas are kind of cheap and it's the actually like turning it into a right. thing at least for me like i have a huge list of things where it's like wouldn't it be cool if i did something about this where uh so it's like i have no shortage of that on and a lot of them i even have like a, a starting idea it's the like all the steps between that and putting a video up or god forbid writing a paper presentation or an article or something um it's like this this article that i'm publishing in march the first draft of this i finished writing in 2019 so it's been you know three full years of revisions and coming back to it and uh adding more to it um and sending it in and getting rejected and sending it back and getting revisions to do and um so uh yeah and then even for the the videos it's like you know i i have my idea and then it's like well should i have to transcribe it i have to write a script i have to learn to play it i have to record all this stuff i have to edit it um so yeah so so i guess when i'm listening i'm not normally uh or as far as like the content for the youtube videos and stuff i'm still i'm kind of coasting off of all the listening i've done for my the rest of my life right. um, I, I don't feel that same pressure to write about new stuff which i guess it would be different if i was writing reviews or mm -hmm. uh, stuff which um right. I, I, I did for a little bit uh, back in the day, but um, yeah, as far as finding new stuff to listen to, I just, I'm trying to stay plugged in. I'm trying to fight against the, uh, the like stereotype of your, your listening freezes at a certain point and you just stop listening to new stuff. Yeah. Um, so I, I have a few uh, places I, I go to look for like new, new stuff to listen to the, uh, machine music blog i don't know if you know it. um but he he does a really nice like five things you should listen to every week which has i found a lot of good stuff for from um so uh yeah i'm just like trying to and and i'm i'm also kind of now that i have my my dissertation project in the works i'm always like listening for examples of of things mm -hmm. and also could like because for teaching too i'm always listening for uh things that would be good to teach certain theory concepts um but yeah i i don't know i i do all sorts of listening i do a lot of listening where i turn it on and i don't remember a single thing because mm -hmm. i was paying uh attention to something else or and I also, sometimes I have stuff where I try to like put something on, close my eyes, just listen uh, and pay attention. But I don't have as much time for that sort of listening as I used to. And like, I think a lot of the li like listening I do at this point turns into transcribing and learning to play something. Like I consider that kind of part of the process of sure. deeper listening. 
um for me like I, I feel like i read toilet of hell and invisible oranges on occasion um are there any other blogs or sources like that like the machine music that you mentioned um any other blog uh, you'd suggest <laughs> yeah i um i i read those uh sometimes i i like uh treble zine has has good stuff i found um or their their kind of tastes are aligned with mine uh it's like the the tech death Tuesday thing mm -hmm. on metal injection is fun. I found some some good stuff on there. There's the uh, also on metal injection the obituarist mm -hmm. Trevor. <laughs> I don't know how to say his name. The Black Dahlia murder guy. Gotcha. Um, he does like a, a survey of under really underground metal. Um, yeah, and then a lot of it is. You know, I, I go to shows and I see an opener who I've never seen and I like get into their stuff or um, whatever. Yeah, but I, I'm, I'm not nearly as plugged into new stuff as I um, would like to be and mm -hmm. or as uh, as a lot of people doing this sort of thing are. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the YouTube channel Score Follower. No. Um, I just came across it like two days ago and uh, it's it's addictive because it's just like scores that, you know, like I'm, sh I'm sure you've seen those types of videos where it's like a score of Zanakis or whatever. And you're like, oh, cool, I get to yeah. follow along. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because they like called for all this music and I was seeing so much wacky stuff where it's like everybody has a beautiful score for something. And even if it's the wackiest music, um, but uh, I don't know, like what, like, do you feel like the score is, becoming more or less essential in metal like um it seems like a lot of the Kralis guys communicate all their stuff orally um and then it appears maybe as a transcription but then other people it's like like for me for instance everything that I do is like mapped out in a spreadsheet that it goes into guitar pro and yeah yeah um what do you think the deal is with the score uh in metal these days uh it's a good question like I think um and th and that's like the sort of question where, where that I really want to figure out because I, my feeling is that there are some bands that have like really detailed tabs or scores that they, they share with each other. Um, like I, I was talking to Kate from Pupil Slicer and she sent me a bunch of their like rehearsal guitar pro uh, files. Um, whereas like I was talking to Max from Anomalous uh, for, for this article, he like they just like did it all in the studio they didn't really have a score going and they would like go and noodle or i mean i guess they did it as a demo first and then they recorded it in the studio but like they just do it all by recording and then like the carbon guys do uh like i'm pretty sure they they share midi with each other or they like make midi demos um and learn from those uh although i want to talk to them a lot more um and then like on the other end, you have, uh, you know, the, the sheet happens company, um, mm -hmm. where they like some of these bands like animals as leaders and, uh, between the barrier to me and these other mostly prog bands, they sell these like beautiful, huge, polished, uh, tab books. Um, and I, I feel like that's kind of, it's becoming more and more um something that people want and care about uh like being able to look through the 
the tab as it's it's going just to like make sense of it or be like man that's even more complicated than i thought mm-hmm. uh or to actually learn to play it um so yeah i, I think i think there we're going to see more and more of it but i i don't really know um it, it is a lot of work for bands to to get it together if they don't already learn from from a score mm-hmm. and share it with each other um yeah but yeah but there's there's i mean there's tons of different types of notation and um like like you said there's you you've got your your spreadsheets and it's really fun to to look through that and um and listen to your stuff i'm, I'm a big fan i love this like really kind of obtuse busy like heavy stuff mm-hmm. um with a uh, like tabs and stuff like i feel like i mentioned something about tabs to a friend and he sort of scoffed at me and um at the same time i'm like back in the day when i was just using sibelius if you see like metal and sibelius it's like oh god fuck yeah. like, this is so awful looking because like yeah. um i mean like with anything that chromatic it's like uh <laughs> Um, yeah. Do you think that like tabs are a better option? Like, I feel like they're more elegant in many ways, um, but like maybe a piano roll, like uh, how, I don't know, it seems like there's something yeah. too cumbersome about standard notation. Yeah, I, I think, um, I mean, just like dealing with the the octaves and ledger lines in standard notation, like you have this stuff <laughs> where, you know, you're if you're in draw, if you're playing on an eight string or whatever, it's like you're, <laughs> way below the staff and then you're like but you can't just like move everything down two octaves because you're also like transcribing any of the sugar stuff it's like jumping like two or three octaves at a time um not to mention all the the enharmonic stuff and the um like the the weirdness of the the how you would try to spell everything and um how there's generally there's only like one good solution for fingering this metal stuff so like why not just give that um yeah i'm i'm a huge fan of tabs a lot of it's just like i i mean i um i'm a typical caveman guitarist where i learned tabs a long time before i learned standard notation and i've you know i for a while i was diligent practicing my sight reading with standard notation but i i'm still so much better at tabs um and yeah i, I think there's there's also there's just like so much stuff specific to um, to metal that makes so much more sense in tabs um, on on guitar, uh, yeah. So I when I but it's I like when I transcribe I do it to standard notation um, because I I normally am not like paying attention to how I would actually finger something or um, mm-hmm. or whatever. But uh, if I'm ever gonna play it, I I will put it in tabs normally unless it's like super simple do you do you find that there's any sort of pushback about tabs in um in your work like at columbia like does any professor say like no you got to do this or um i don't know i've never i've never no i mean i but i I don't think i've ever tried to like publish tabs i just always put stuff in standard notation if it's going to be like an example in a paper or whatever um but maybe I should, I mean, and some people do put tabs and notation. Um, and I don't think anyone would, I think people would care if I put only tabs uh, with no rhythm 
because the assumption is that most of your audience are going to be people who know music theory but don't necessarily know anything about metal if you're presenting at a conference or publishing in a, a journal or whatever um so uh yeah and tabs really are only guitarists can can really make use of them um so yeah it's an interesting question i i've i have a lot of like unfinished thoughts and projects about tabs and standard notation and mm -hmm. copyright and transcription and <laughs> notation softwares and all that which can be some sort of project about at some point for sure or several projects well um we're up here at an hour so i'll let you get going um do you have anything i mean like your youtube channel is metal music theory um you got your homepage. i'll link all that stuff in the notes um anything else you want to like mention yeah. or no i'm <laughs> i'm pretty i'm pretty content with how how famous i am which is not very famous so <laughs> i'm things are things are going well i'm uh yeah i don't know if that sounds conceited or whatever um but i'm i'm not uh not too worried about trying to advertise more stuff <laughs> for sure I'll, yeah you follow me on on social media if you want like up-to-date stuff but um, real quick, do you ever cross paths with uh, George Lewis while you're around? Yeah, campus? yeah. On my my, I mean, I I I know him. I don't know if he knows my name. Pop <laughs> quiz him. I've talked to him once or twice. Um, yeah, but he's he's a a giant of of scholarship, music scholarship performance. Um, yeah, the like the very first day I was here for like our orientation, I was. I found myself in an elevator with him and he was very nice. He politely asked what I was doing. And I was like, eh, metal, metal stuff. I'm um, sure you handled yeah. it better than I would have. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Cool. Well, Calder, thanks for talking to me. Um, I'll talk to you in the future and you're always yeah. welcome to come back and chat about whatever you got going on. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, this is, it's been great. I'm a huge fan of your, your stuff, your, this podcast, you, you've got some really great guests. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. My pleasure. Um, talk to you later, man. Peace. Yep. Yeah.